The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Ray Bjorklin, the CEO and President of Birchgrove Consulting. Awesome analysis, inspired insight. Uh, Ray, welcome to the show. Thanks, Roger. You know, Ray, you cover, you are a market you know, consultant, maven, whatever. You look at the budget, you look at how people execute, you look at trends, all any kind of piece of data that folks are interested in with all things federal procurement, right? Is that right? Yes. Right. So, okay. And some so, state and local too. And some, okay. <laughs> so today, let's, well, let's, let's, Let's talk about the federal piece of it and and try to take a look at, you know, the budget, the shutdown, how people execute, what does that mean, what do companies need to think about in that regard, um, you know, and what does it mean to their bottom line in a certain sense in their risk calculation. Uh, So let's start first um, just talking about the thing that's most present in everyone's mind (laughs) because it was painful or at least it felt painful. Um, and that is the shutdown that took place earlier this year. Yes. You know? So what what happened, and what's the impact? You know, when you th- when you talk when you're thinking about federal procurement and people's budgets. Well, as we were talking about a little earlier, uh, you know, it was called a partial shutdown, but in some ways, a continuing resolution is also a partial shutdown. Uh, because it does inhibit the amount of spending that goes on. And for this partial shutdown that occurred about for about a month, it was affecting, definitely affecting certain agencies who basically had to zero out their funding. <clears throat> it wasn't just a matter of, uh, you know, being dealing with uh, new starts or, or continuing work. It means just zeroing it out. So what happens? Well, you know, we've had shutdowns in the past, and this, unfortunately, was one of the very longest. And it starts to create a backlog of work that needs to get done by the agency, the agency buying activities, so that they can be serving their customers. And when they can't do the work because there's no money, it's not like you can write a contract without any money. Unfortunately, that's not the way, you know. The uh, procurement. We'd like to works. all be able to do that, right? Right. We would love to do that. <laughs> yeah, we love to put down our charge cards, but you know, charge cards don't necessarily handle seven million dollar transactions. Okay, so uh, you know, those agencies that were in that partial shutdown crisis just weren't able to do the work that they had to get done. So that means there's a backlog, and it means a really compressed backlog, and it means that there's going to be a an acceleration of activity toward the end of the year. You can say, well, okay, maybe those agencies' contracting activities have full full inboxes, so they aren't going to be able to even catch up. But generally, they do catch up. Now, there's a history of it in the Congressional Budget Office actually uh, looked at this particular shutdown and anticipated that there's going to be 
They said about $8 billion uh, that were on hold. And, uh, you know, I did an analysis kind of from bottom up, and I think it's more like $11, $11.5 billion. But, you know, it becomes good news and bad news. The good news is the shutdown is over. The procurements are moving forward. And they'll spend all that money. And they'll be playing catch-up. And that leads to the bad news that the shutdown is over. That <laughs> right, yeah. you know, it's just that there's going to be a high, high uh, acceleration of work, and that has the potential to lead to mistakes, and that's what really concerns me. I'm worried about what's going to be happening over the rest of this fiscal year. So that that eleven billion dollars, what you calculated as an increase, um. Well, it was on the. It was held off the table. Okay, by this contract spending. Correct. And is it is it, you know, tied to the agencies that were actually shut down, or is it across the board? It's to the agencies that were shut down, and specifically their discretionary accounts. Okay. Now, some of the mandatory accounts for agencies, and and even um, like one of them that was shut down was uh, Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of mandatory accounts, and the mandatory spending can continue on. And you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, mandatory means Medicare, or means you know entitlements." Well, there's also some contractor addressability in those numbers, billions of dollars, in fact. Uh, so there, there are a few things that can go on. But I, what I was doing is taking looking at those agencies. And the portions of agencies that were on hold, and uh, you know, because you look at HHS, for instance, Health and Human Services, and FDA was under a shutdown while the rest of HHS was moving forward. There are some interesting reasons for that, but uh, you know, looking at at those particular sub agencies that were shut down and their discretionary accounts. And then adding up the dollars. That's where I came up with my number. Okay. So just a quick so a question that I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but I always wondered about this. So one of the things you started to see in this shutdown, um, because it was so long, is that even organizations that were funded or were funded in through reimbursable accounts, that sort of thing, let's think, started to scale back you know, with their activities um, is, you know, was there, is it that just a question of perception? Was it, did you, was there a drop in like revenue perhaps that, for example, GSA, um, have you had a chance to look at that or didn't have a chance to look at the revenue or because that's the, the intra-governmental spending. Yes, yeah. And there was a time when some of that data was very transparent and you could actually look at it. It's very tough to look at it now. During the activity, you can look at it usually about a quarter behind, you know, but you you can't really. So, we, so yeah, we're getting close to where you might be able to yeah, see it, right? Yeah, but Maybe. you really couldn't see it during the shutdown, uh, except that you you could in, you could infer it because if an agency said that their strategy, their acquisition strategy, was to use a uh, an assisted acquisition tool like a GWAC that GSA manages like an HCATS or something like that, then 
okay, yeah, you couldn't do anything. So there, therefore, the money wouldn't couldn't even move, even if even if that agency had their appropriations, the buying agency, the using agency, the buying or servicing agency, which would be GSA in that case, did not couldn't do anything because they had to shut down. Right. So they lost their fee on top of that money coming into their accounts. The fee being what, of course, keeps GSA alive and healthy. Yes, well, at least parts of GSA. Right? Parts of GSA. Yeah. <laughs> so, can you? Can we? We're getting. We got about a couple minutes left, and you know, I want to get into some of this market analysis, in particular about execution and you know, things that companies need to think about. But just big picture now. Okay, so now we have a budget. We have a compressed, you know, overall budget. There's some folks who've had their money all year. Yep. Other people now compressed, but overall. You know, when you look at the addressable spend for uh, contractors between mandatory and discretionary accounts, what are we looking at here? About $990 billion in contractor addressable spending. Okay. And is that like, does that include, that's like grants and everything? Or nope. what, no, no, nope. no, no, no. Okay. And yes, there are contractors who occasionally receive grants, mm-hmm. but they, they are more typically nonprofits or not for profits. Uh, and they may be doing some research work or a very small scale. And then there are larger grants that go to uh, social services organizations. No, not talking about that. We're talking about contractor addressable. And that's in the mandatory and the discretionary? Correct. So, I mean, that's a different number than you hear OMB talk about, right? It almost like their number is half that size. It is, yes. And how do you come to your number? I use their data. Well, <laughs> they apparently submit, more accurately too, huh? <laughs> they submit a budget. Uh-huh. They submit a budget to the Congress and the compilation and, and composition of all the agency budgets that they've chewed on and passed back and everything else to, to the agencies. But that president's budget that goes forward identifies in it Contractor addressable spending. I got to look at all the different elements where that occurs, and I do that every year. And I had fun looking at this upcoming year, which, by the way, the addressable spend is about a trillion dollars. Wow! For twenty twenty, is that the, so? We'll be, we'll be crossing a threshold that we've have never crossed. I before? believe so. I believe wow. so. Yeah, you know, right. I'm still not hundred percent looking and done. This looking is at the president's the budget. It is okay. Well, maybe we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about the president's yeah. budget. Let's and talk then, about the execution. Of and then this we'll get on to budget. execution as well. Yeah. Okay. My guest today is Ray Bjorklund. He is the president and CEO of Birch Grove Consulting. Awesome analysis and an inspired insight. And when we come back, we'll continue our discussion a little bit of the president's budget. And we'll talk about the challenges in execution and what companies and contractors need to think about. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on The Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Ray Bjorklund, uh, President and CEO of Birch Grove Consulting. Awesome analysis, inspired insight. And uh, Ray, um, I just want to spend a couple minutes just to, you know, because it's, you know, it's always right. The president's budget is a political statement. You've, you know, uh, you've made that statement many, many times, and it sunk in, Ray. I got it. Good, I got, good. It. I got it. So <laughs> um, so there's a little bit, we can talk a little bit about it because it's going to look different anyway. 
yes. at the end of the day. Um, but just some quick thoughts on that, and then we'll turn to um, you know the the importance of an, looking at and assessing contract performance li- risk, and not and from agency execution perspective, if you're a contractor. So, president's budget, Ray, go. Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, looking at it this year or for 2020, which is the budget that has been now submitted to Congress, it's looking like it's roughly a trillion dollars in contractor addressable spend. And that's across everything from professional services to buying paper and pencils to buying tanks and ships. And, of course, that's where a lot of the big driver is in the addressable spend, is in the investments that the administration wants to make in national security, mostly for the military, but also something called $5 billion for a wall, uh, which is also a national security point and certainly an issue the way the president is casting it. Uh, So, you know, you mentioned that I have driven home that point time and again about the president's budget being a political statement, and yes, it is. So it is a it is the request that's made to Congress. And in that request, we know from years past, you know, it didn't even matter if, if you have the same parties governing the Hill and the White House, there still is resistance to accept everything that is requested. And this administration, which came in with their first real budget, which was for 2019, the one we just went through the miserable shutdown on, uh, that budget requested that a lot of specific programs and even sub-agencies be killed. And, you know, even though it was a a, – the House and the Senate were both Republican, the president didn't get everything requested – now, this budget for 2020 is requesting some of the same kills, you know, on the, the, the notion of the federal government, the United States has to be fiscally responsible, uh, that these agencies have outlived their usefulness, and so on and so forth. But there are a lot of pet rocks involved in those agencies. So it's not likely that the president is going to get everything requested in the budget. So therefore, is there going to be as much contractor addressable spend? Maybe it would be less than a trillion, but I think it's going to be kind of close to a trillion dollars. Uh, and because I think both the House and the Senate are interested in supporting national security. So that means that a lot of that defense-oriented spending – Maybe not as much of the homeland security oriented spending, but a lot of that spending is going to be going for. Right. So, and it's well with the Democratic House, it's you know even less likely, a little that, less likely yeah, that that uh, some of these requests are ever going to come to fruition. So, so I'm a contractor, Ray, and I'm looking at a particular agency or then the sub uh, sub departments or sub elements in that agency. And their procurement dollars is one piece of it. And we've talked a little bit about looking at how, how you kind of look at that. But there's also the uh, the contract performance risk um, that you've taken a look at and put together some tools for people to do analysis. People understand how well various agencies execute. 
Can you talk a little bit about that to introduce the idea? Yeah, and, and I think it's really important for contractors to be very much aware of what kind of customer they are potentially dealing with. And as and one CEO told me at one time, not all revenue is created equal. And sometimes it's very difficult. Well, I heard to, the term that there's such a thing as bad revenue. Too, uh, right? yeah, 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 there can be because of the extra expense, expenses you might incur to try and be able to gain all of that revenue. And extra expenses because you're dealing with an agency that is not effective in its execution of the contract dollars that have been appropriated to it. And that, to me, is something I think contractors should be very sensitive to because if they are not, then they run the risk of contracts not coming to fruition as quickly or maybe not at all because of competition, but not as quickly as they would have anticipated, which particularly for publicly traded companies can really start to affect their quarterly revenue. Right, the cash flow. Absolutely. And a lot of contractors kind of brush that off, and I don't quite understand that because I believe it's really important to be aware of who you're dealing with. Uh, If you've got a tough customer or if you've got a customer that lacks certain skills, certain competencies, you're probably going to have reduced cash flow. Right. It's, it, there it creates more risk in that particular you know, segment of the federal market. Yes. And it can it can vary widely from sub-agency to sub-agency. And that's why when I do the analysis, I look at sub-agency level instead of looking at, say, the entire HHS. You know, many of those sub-agencies are kind of alike. Then you got NIH, which is pretty different. And then you've got FDA, which is even more different because their appropriations come from the Committee for Agriculture. So that's why, because they're under a different set of statutes that guide their appropriations. And that's why they were under the partial shutdown while the rest of HHS was not. So you've got to be aware of those things. And, And obviously, if you've done business with FDA, I'm sure companies who have done that are very much aware that they're dealing with that. But if you think you're going to be going after some new requirement and starting to set aside uh, people to to do the business development, to run a capture team, to develop new competition, maybe even buy another company to be better positioned, all of those investments that you're making may not come to fruition, may not get quick return. Because that agency can't execute. Right. I'm not you know, pointing fingers at FDA because they just didn't have any money that they could execute with, let alone you know actually do the work. So I'm just yeah, – it's, it's very logical to me. It seems like in the, when you're looking at a, the private sector, you, know, you want to understand your customer, right, and how yeah. good a customer there are and how – efficient and effective you effectively you can get to them this is the same thing only just looking at it from a from a public sector perspective what what are kind of the data elements you 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 look at and we we got a, about a minute left and we can talk more about how you figured, how you take a look at it and maybe we'll take a case study 
next next segment you can talk walk walk us through it okay so just briefly uh, there is one place where the government is supposed to indicate or post its acquisition strategies and that being fed biz ops now there are other platforms like the army's got one the navy's got one there there are a few other platforms where that's done i mean even gsa ebuy you know is another kind of platform where those strategies are posted but if it's a significant procurement you're generally going to see something about it in fed biz ops that's where you can actually start to count or or decompose what the acquisition strategy is and start to do the analysis to see whether that agency can actually execute or not. And that's a good place to stop, Ray. When we come back, we'll talk about that analysis and take a look at one particular agency or department just as a kind of a case study of of what companies can learn about their potential business partners, the federal government, and a particular agency or department. My guest today is Ray Bjorklund. He is a president and CEO of Birch Grove Consulting, Awesome Analysis, Inspired Insight. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Ray Bjorklund, president and CEO of Birch Grove Consulting, Awesome Analysis, and Inspired Insight. And Ray, um, yeah, we're going to start talking about that execution, that performance risk, and what companies should be thinking about when they're looking at the market, um, submarkets, um, you know, what it means for their cash flow, how people execute. Um, but you did a great article, you know, that actually you know was shared with the coalition members. Um, it's, I think I got the title. Just remind it was a when churn doesn't produce butter. Yeah. yeah well, what does that mean? It's related here, right? It is related because this is where you start to see indications of whether or not a sub-agency buying activity can really be in a position to properly execute on the amount of dollars that they've been appropriated. And the reason why I looked at the churn, called it a churn, I've always called it a churn, not necessarily related to butter, but, you know, I figured that worked, too. Everybody loves butter, right? <laughs> Go ahead. That's right. Huh. Okay. Is that when you see toward the end of a fiscal year, when there is a lot of increased buying activity, and, you know, we've already mentioned that, uh, you know, it could be anywhere from 9 to $11 billion of increased compressed activity that's going to occur over the rest of this fiscal year now in 2019. Yeah, but looking back to the 2018 and looking back to what happens in the last couple of months, there's a lot of churn. And there are some agencies, sub-agencies, that are worse than others in launching, announcing a procurement, and then canceling it. Or launching it and then deciding that they want a very different acquisition strategy after you, the contractor, have spent quite a bit of resources in chasing that particular opportunity. And when you look at, and you can read the article, but you know, some of the analysis shows that for... I think it's up so, on the Far and Beyond blog. Yeah, That's it where is. Put it. Yep. 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 I pulled it down from there recently okay. <laughs> for another purpose. Uh, but looking at that, you know, there are ways of kind of characterizing what can happen to work that is 
in the pipeline for a procurement and things that can happen where well, you can lose money like your money, your appropriations can go away or there can be a shift in priorities. Uh, you can run out of time and some agencies actually do enforce acquisition lead time or PALT uh, to the point where they will turn away certain requirements that they don't believe they can execute on by the end of the fiscal year. So where does that money go? Fizzles, unless you can figure out some other way to get it spent. You know, there are times when those requirements change to the point where it becomes a very new procurement. And the contracting officer has to say, oh, you know, we, we've got, uh, we got a reset here. So a lot of reasons. And when you start to add that up, that is hundreds of millions of dollars lost by virtue of causing the contractors to spend more resources to deal with those delays and those changes in the competitive picture of the acquisition. And by incurring those costs, a lot of those costs in one way or another get passed on to the government later on. And so when you start to add that up, the government is doing it to themselves. Right. Ultimately, it's costing the customer. Yes. The customer's poor or let's say poor. Yeah, you know, it is poor. For, in some cases, it's going to be excellent. some cases, it's going to be poor. Those agencies where that aren't doing a good job in their acquisition planning, you know, it's going to cost in many different ways. But one of them, you're saying, is that the churn is going to, you know, turn into green in terms of, you know, yeah. higher prices in the long run. Green butter. Green yeah, butter. Green butter, yeah. <laughs> higher prices to address that risk in the time. Yes. In the time of and timing for the money and the cash flow. Is that, right? is that what you're seeing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I see that. And. Yeah, it's really hard to to precisely measure it. But if you look at at the the uh, the amount of money that's typically spent on a procurement, let's say to do bid and proposal uh, capture of a small, simple, simple, simplified services type of procurement, you're probably going to be spending roughly one and a half to two percent of the value of that procurement. You start adding all that up, and if it goes longer and longer because you're still trying to chase that procurement, you don't want to let it go, you know, that those costs build up. It starts to hurt you, the contractor, and you're probably going to raise your prices. Or if you're fortunate enough to have cost pools, you can put the money into a cost pool and, and account for it yeah. for next year, which means charging higher rates. Right. Um, you can do that. Yeah. So when you when you look at a department or agency, you you, you say you use FPDS. That doesn't capture everything. I don't. I'll get to that. I'll have some questions along those lines later. What we may see this year, but you know, what are the data? What are you? What's the data you're pulling or looking at to give? You know, what are the factors and information to give you a sense of what the risk profile is at a particular organization? Uh, just looking at a few points out of FedBizOps. Uh, where you can look at the volume of activity for a unique, or say unique numbers, basically unique numbers of procurements. And it might range from you know, tens to hundreds during a particular quarter or period. Uh, and that sub-agency, some sub-agencies have very complex requirements, some have very simplified requirements. 
Some have combinations of the two. So looking at that and then looking about the number of times within that data set, if you will, that the uh, agency or sub-agency changes its mind or totally cancels a procurement. That's a pretty good bellwether right there, those two points about whether or not the agency is prepared to execute in a very effective way. And I call call them mistakes because that's sometimes what the agencies will do. Well, we had a mistake in the requirement or we had a mistake in our financing or we had a mistake in, in the scope and therefore we have to cancel it. And so even just counting up the cancellations, you can see a pattern over time, particularly when the new money is coming out, when there's kind of this – the the, the uh, floodgates have opened, sure. mm-hmm. kind of a gush of, of money. And then you typically see that kind of same kinds of mistakes occur toward the end of a fiscal period, like sometimes a quarter, but typically at the end of the fiscal year, when there's a, an effort to spend a lot of money. And that kind of brings you back to the first point about if there's another $11 billion that was on hold during the shutdown that has to be spent doesn't have to be spent, but that's generally how the agencies try to yes. to, to do their we work. We have to spend this money to make sure we get this at least the same amount next year, right? That's that's that's, that's sort of, that's the that's the theory. That's the theory. That's yeah. the folklore theory, and it yes. generally holds true. Yes. <laughs> no, it's not an Arabic myth. I don't think. Um, so, is it not? Do you look also at you know the time to procure, like you know what that is to actually get to contract award? I mean that would tell you a lot too whether the agency is pretty good at, it, at procurement. It does. It does. And and that's where I also try and find the PALT information, procurement acquisition lead time. Not all agencies are very good about publicizing it. Many agencies don't even follow it very well. But most agencies do have sort of policy about PALT. So for a particular dollar threshold, a particular type of contract vehicle, sometimes a type of requirement – they will set standards for timeliness and sometimes standards for authority and approval for the particular procurement. So if they're about to violate their policy PALT time, like let's say it's a simplified uh, GSA schedule order, uh, well, usually they'll say that's like 30 days. Okay, if they're typically taken 45 to 60 days, they've got a problem in execution. Yeah. yeah. And so you can start to see that. I also look, and not for this particular analysis, but look also at, at response times. And you know, if an if an agency buying activity agency is is giving very very tight response times, somebody might say, "Ooh, that's a wired procurement," right? <laughs> or maybe it's just that the agency is very poor and very ineffective on their execution of the contracting strategy or acquisition strategy. So you get that very short period of time, uh, then that's really not helping anybody except somebody who's extremely well positioned. Right, like an incumbent perhaps. That's, <laughs> Probably an incumbent yeah. or it could be wired for a particular procurement or a particular contractor. But it sort of limits competition and yeah. therefore might – result in increased prices for that agency. And this is a whole different matter. Right. And Ray, we're up on the break. When we come back, we'll continue looking at that market, the contractor risk profile, have some questions about, you know, since we're in this compressed 
period with more money, you know, what do you, what does, what do you see for strategies that agencies may employ moving forward to get the to get you know the services and products they need? My guest today is Ray Bjorklund, Birch Grove Consulting. Awesome analysis, inspired insight. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Ray Bjorklund, President and CEO of Birch Grove Consulting. Awesome analysis, inspired insight. Um, and Ray, so I have to ask this question. Have you gotten your you know trademarked rating scale yet for agencies in terms of their you know, uh, less churn, more churn. When does it actually turn to butter? When does it not <laughs> kind of thing? You got a rating scale yet? Not yet. Uh, I have been uh, dabbling with that over time. But what I do help clients on is understanding what that, you know, what is important in the client's book. So criteria by which they should be judging the risk potential or risk profile of a particular customer. And then, mapping customers' risk profiles to those particular, uh, you know, the client unique uh, requirements, criteria. criteria. And you could see different clients have different criteria, different things based on their business goals or whatever that that you would be applying to that situation. Absolutely. So when you're looking at – so there is a rating system out there. It's just, well, it, but it's not. It's not a universal rating. system. <laughs> I'm trying to system. pull it out of you, right? <laughs> no. Um, so, but uh, just turning to causation a little bit. Um, so we have a rating system, you know, tailored to each client. Um, you know, when you're looking at these things, and just based on your experience over all these many, 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 many years in government, Thank you. government. <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate that. Um, is it, is it the contracting side? Is it the the requirement side? Is it the both? What, what sort of drives this churn from your perspective? Um, or is it, is it just symptomatic of the system we have? Uh, it is both, <laughs> both contracting and requirements. Uh, you know, I, I've been kind of on both sides. I haven't been, I never had a warrant government warrant for as a contracting officer, but I wrote RFPs <laughs> and I worked on source selections and I, and I saw it on both sides. And it's usually, you know, there's a frustration from the requirements side of the house about the contracting office's ability to res- be responsive. I'll just say it that way. Uh, and the frustration from the contracting office's side of the table or side of the house is that they claim the requirements are faulty and that's why they can't run a good acquisition. Well, it's both folks. I mean, it's both sides need to work more closely together. And I've always been a strong, strong believer in integrated product teams and integrated process teams, you know, to be able to sort through from all different perspectives, legal, Logistics, contracting, engineering, program management, HR, from every side, every angle within the agency to be able to – this is, of course, for very large-scale procurements. Sure, yeah, sure, yeah. sure. But to be able to sort out those issues ahead of time because when you define a good acquisition strategy, it's a whole lot easier to execute it. 
than it is to kind of make it up as you go along. And that's what I see happening too often because those two sides, requirements and contracting, don't necessarily talk to each other. And when they do, they don't necessarily communicate. Yeah, yeah. So that that is where a lot of the problems come into play. Now, yes, I acknowledge there's a whole lot of of lack of capability in the contracting environment being, I'll say, lack of people, but also say lack of skills, something as fundamental as critical thinking skills, which are necessary to be able to sort through all of the potential issues that could be encountered as you're executing. And to understand how they relate to each other. Yes. It's not, it's not that you can't address. It's not a checklist. Yeah. And it's not done in isolation. Right. The procurement is in a certain sense, a living, moving thing and it all moves together and you pull on one part of it and you have to understand how it may or may not affect other parts, including the schedule, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it, it even is, it's, um, it crosses beyond the table that belongs to the government into contractor world. And and I can acknowledge from being in the government for decades that I wasn't always as sensitive or as understanding of the contractor's business requirements as I should have been. Yeah. I, I generally got it, but I didn't always get it. Right. I, I agree with that having worked in the in the government for a while myself, right? <laughs> yeah, so now um, I try to look at it from the other side of the table. Yeah, and- absolutely. Um, so when you're looking at this year, I just want to get a couple quick questions. we got about three minutes left. Um, so this year, you know, compressed time frames for several key agencies, more money, um, $11 billion. Um, would you see what do you see happening? Perhaps is it going to be use of more pre-existing contracts than normal, or you know shorter, shorter procurement lead times? I mean, I think we're, we're there's going to be pressure in that churn, yes. and, and you know the whether you're going to get butter or not is going to be a big question this year. But go ahead. Yes, and and I would agree with your your postulations there that they're probably going to be looking at some existing contract vehicles. Uh, you know, whatever we feel about it, the notion of a best in class, you know, it is a way through the acquisition gateway to find ways of executing your strategy. More quickly, yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. And more quickly. Uh, and I think that there will be some compressed schedules, uh, but I think there's probably going to be, I don't think all of that $11 billion is going to be spent. And, you know, CBO says it's about $9 billion. I don't think it's all going to be spent because I think that the agencies are going to run out of time. I, I just, you know, it, normally it is all spent, any money that's kind of uh, hanging back there or built up in your your, your uh, funding pipeline. Yes. You know, yeah, appropriations pipeline. But yeah, I just, I really don't think it's going to be a whole lot better. I think there's going to be some butter coming out of it. But there's still going to be a whole lot of churn, and I hope contractors are very well aware of how these sub-agencies work or don't work and take that into their risk accountant. Yeah, I just – I'm going to give you the last last word. Is that your big piece of advice for companies when they're thinking about the market and particularly this year? That really is. And, yeah, talk to your CFO. I mean, the CFO has hopefully got some sort of risk management, risk uh, tolerance and you know, recognize that if you want to get that revenue that's out there, eleven billion dollars, that 
you're probably going to have to do some accelerated reaction within your company to be able to propose and bid on those requirements and negotiate and win. And you're going to have to recognize if you're willing to take the risk that is entailed because there is going to be a risk. Yeah, and make sure you understand the pre-existing contracts that folks may be targeting. In particular, your point about best in class is a great one. Yep. I want to thank my guest today, Ray Bjorklund. is the president and CEO of Birchgrove Consulting. Awesome analysis, inspired insight. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.